Well, this rainy morning, I'm glad all of you got up and came out. You're troopers, you are. Tough. What does it mean to be a difference maker? That person whose desire is not only to inherit and live in all of God's promised blessing, but who chooses to be a blessing to people all around them. It's a person who responds to a stirring inside of them that cries out for something beyond bland, sterile, odorless, colorless, tasted, uh, domesticated Christianity. It always seeks the path of least resistance, least difficulty, and least sacrifice. It's the least admired. It is not followed. It is ignored. But the people that make a difference have no stomach for that. They are fueled by the presence and power of God and the passion to know Him and to make Him known. Difference makers recognize that untamed faith that resides in every single one of us that follows Jesus. They allow that rumbling, that purpose, that desire, that dream of God to so move inside of them, they can't help but say yes to His call on their lives. They all recognize Ephesians 2.20 that we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to accomplish amazing things that He called us to do long ago. You have been created to do some pretty amazing things. That is God's Word to you. So I want to focus on a man Moses invested a lot of his life and a lot of his time in. He's a young warrior named Joshua. And we first hear about him in Exodus chapter 17 where Moses appoints him to lead their little army against the mighty Amalekites. Moses is on top of a large hill. He's overlooking the battle. He's praying that Joshua and the army would prevail. What Moses soon realized was that as long as his hands were outstretched in prayer, Joshua and the army would prevail against the enemy. But whenever he lowered his arms out of fatigue, the Amalekites would start to win. So Aaron and another man named Ur supported Moses' arms throughout the day until the battle was won. That's an amazing way for God to demonstrate tangibly the importance of teamwork and prayer. We need all of us in the battle. Nobody can do it alone, praying and supporting the leader. When Diana Nyad swam 111 miles, you think you did something, in 53 hours from Cuba to Florida, in shark-infested waters without a cage, when she stood on shore, she said three things. Never give up. It was her fifth attempt in 35 years. She had failed on all five attempts. This was her last go, and she's 64 years old. She said, never give up. You're never too old to chase your dreams. And swimming is a team sport, not an individual sport. And she displayed 35 team members who fed her and encouraged her, who took jellyfish out of the way and swam ahead of her to keep those vicious stings and to watch for sharks. There was nothing about it that was solitary. It was a team effort. She got the focus, but she said we could never have done it without a team. 
And Moses could never have done the job without a team around him. I can't do my job here as a leader without our great summit team. We can't operate as a family unless we operate as a team. We need each other. We each have a part to play. Not the same part, but every part's important. Now, for his part in this victory against the Amalekites, Joshua obviously made an impression on Moses. Because out of all the people of Israel, Moses chose Joshua to accompany him partway up Mount Sinai to meet God. It says in Exodus 24 that Moses remained on Mount Sinai 40 days and nights experiencing the glory of God in such a powerful way, the Israelites down in the valley saw it as a raging fire. And what's amazing is that Joshua waited there halfway up the entire 40 days and 40 nights. And from that introduction of Joshua, we get a sense of his tremendous courage and his faithfulness. But it's in Exodus 33, verse 11, we really get to understand this guy's heart. Not only is he courageous, not only is he loyal, not only is he brave and a believer, but he really has a passion for God. After Moses rebukes Israel for turning their backs on God, worshiping a stupid golden cow, he sets up a place of worship outside the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. It was a place where anybody who wanted to could worship and come and seek God. So I read Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent, and he pitched it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anybody inquiring of the Lord would go to the Tent of Meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose up and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance of their own tent. Now, even though the tent of meeting was established for everybody's worship, it looks like they were all pretty much content just to sit outside their own tent and let Moses relate to God on their behalf. Let somebody else carry them before God. It's easy to let other people do the work. Let other people carry the torch while we stand and watch from our tent. You know, you young people, mom and dad can carry you in their faith for a season, but there comes a time when you're on your own and you have to have a faith on your own. It's got to be yours, not mommy and daddy. And so 20% of the people in America that are in churches carry the load for the other 80%, which is tragic. But here it is, even in the Old Testament. They would rather let Moses represent them to God instead of having a personal relationship on their own. Then verse 11, inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. I'd love a video of that man. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, stayed behind in the tent of meeting. So unlike most of the other Israelites, it wasn't enough for Joshua to relate to God through Moses. He wanted a personal relationship. And by the way, every believer has the right of immediate access to Jesus Christ. Paul writes, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
So you are a priest and a king, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, when you have faith in Jesus Christ. You're a priest, you're a king, you're a son, you're a daughter. You have direct access to God the Father through Christ. You don't have to have somebody else take you to God. You can go yourself. I'm no more a priest than you are. And religion has screwed this thing up terribly. You have access as a son and a daughter to go directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So don't let somebody else carry you. Get your own relationship with God. So going back into the book of Joshua, we know that he's a man. He loves God. He loves God's presence. He understood his need for God in his life. So I've been in ministry a pretty long time. I've met a lot of people who feel like they've got nothing to offer, nothing to give. They feel inadequate. They're uncertain they could really make any difference at all. Now look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. I will give you every place your foot will tread, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and then he gives the boundaries of what the land will be that he's giving them. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Only be strong and very courageous, because you're going to need it. <laughs> I just added that. <laughs> because you're going to lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Here again, be strong and very courageous. By the way, God doesn't do that for you. He says, you be courageous. You be strong. God will assist you. God will help you supernaturally, but He's not going to be bold for you. You have to be. You have to face your fear or your giant. He says, be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from my word to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this, my word, this book of the law, on your lips. That means Say what I say, no matter what you feel, no matter what you see, quote my word. You stand on it. You bet the farm on it. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. So he says, if you'll do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Here it goes again. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And look at the wonderful way God emphasizes this in verse 1 of chapter 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Now, there's a lot packed into that little phrase, three days from now. And very often in the Old Testament, people are told they're going to have to wait a little while for deliverance to come, for God's power to be finally manifested in their life in some difficulty they're in. And that waiting period is often expressed symbolically by three days. 
in Genesis 40. Joshua says to the cupbearer while he's still in prison, in three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your job. In Exodus 3, verse 18, Moses asked Pharaoh, let us go three days into the wilderness. Exodus 19, verse 11, God says, consecrate the people and make them ready by the third day, because of the third day the Lord will come down. Verse 16, and on the morning on the third day it came to pass. Esther says she will fast three days before confronting the pagan king. Only then will she go to the king to seek deliverance for her people. Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. It does not say whale. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, three days before he's released. And I bet he's praying, God, let me go out the way I came in. <laughs> Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So what's the point, Rick? It's the amazing way God sets up the ultimate act of deliverance in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For as much as I passed an important truth to you that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So the third day is God's day. The third day is the day when prisoners go free, when mountains shake, when rivers get parted. It's the day harem girls face down pagan kings and prophets get dropped off at seaside ports by a giant fish. It's the day stones get rolled away and a crucified Savior comes back to life. There's a lot in the third day. That's the day God does it all. Well, God has something extraordinary in mind for Joshua and for Israel on the third day. In Joshua 2, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho. Once in Jericho, the two spies hid in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab risked her life to protect them and to help them escape. I think Christians sometimes think only God can use sweet, nice, clean, pure people. Trouble is, He doesn't have any. So God will use whatever will obey Him. I've just, boy, I got over that real quick. It just takes a few years in Christianity to realize I, you're, I was taught a lot of nonsense in seminary. It just doesn't stack up with the way God operates. He'll give the ball to somebody who'll run it, and they may have some serious flaws, but they will do what God said. It is, God says, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. Oh, well, whatever. All right. You still don't think God will use bad people, but He'll use anybody. That's what's kind of cool, which means He'll use you and me. Thank God for that. She had heard a lot about the God of Israel. Everybody in the city had heard about Israel and their God, and they were terrified. So she bet everything she had on this God of Israel. And although she was a pagan and a prostitute, she became celebrated in Israel. She's mentioned in the books of Matthew, Hebrew, and James. A hooker, a high-dollar escort. And I didn't see any of your names in there, Hebrew, Matthew, or James. 
but I see, call Rahab 1-900 for love. She's in there. You don't mind if I take a few liberties, do you? I, I kind of get into it. And, the, and God uses her because of her heart. See, you can look at what people might be doing, but you can't see the heart. And you don't know what's going on in their life. You, Joe South. I used to sit in a recording studio in Atlanta, Georgia, Master Sound Studio. He wrote a bunch of hits for different people. He had a few of his own. Elvis used to sing it in Vegas, walk a mile in my shoes. Before you accuse, criticize, and abuse, walk a mile in my shoes. You know, when you don't know somebody's story, good idea, just shut up. Don't make a judgment. You don't know what's going on in that life. She becomes a hero of faith because she did what God asked people to do, to trust Him enough to act. And how many days did the spies have before they escaped Jericho? Three days. Now look at Joshua 3. The third day comes in chapter 3, and God's going to do something remarkable on that day. But there's something God's people have to do first. In Joshua 3, verse 13, God lets Joshua know he's calling the priests to lead Israel across the Jordan River. So it says, and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream shall be cut off and shall stand up in walls or a heap. Now, the Jordan River is not a big river. I've been in it. But it's at flood stage, and now it's a different story. That means crossing now won't be safe, and it won't be easy. So they've come all this way. Here's the promised land on the other side. No way to cross the flooded Jordan River. The people are wondering, what's Joshua done? What's he thinking? And God says, I'm going to make a way. The first priest carrying that ark, who's going to be the first one to put his foot in that flooded river, is probably knowing something in his mind that if I sink, I ain't coming home for dinner tonight. That guy had more faith than the rest of them behind him. I reckon they could have dropped the ark when they saw him go down, but he didn't go down. Israel was facing what seemed like an impenetrable barrier. So why won't God make the first move by making a way for them through the river? Well, all Joshua knew is that they would never see God's power, God's sufficiency, or God's faithfulness until they obeyed and did what God said and took the first step. God was teaching Israel. God is teaching us. My power is sufficient, and I want to manifest it in your life. But if you want to see my power, you're going to have to take the risk to obey me. You'll have to take the spiritual risk of trusting me first. To enter into the kind of life I'm calling you to, it's going to involve some spiritual risk-taking. It's going to involve the risk of obedience. There's no such word as safe following Jesus. <laughs> you won't get a miracle in safe. You won't get a miracle in comfort. No, you got straight hair, it'll perm. You'll be in danger. You'll be in deep yogurt. And you'll call on God because you're obeying God, and it'll look like you are toast, and He comes through. He always comes through, but not until you do what He said. 
We stand in a church nearly 200,000 square feet on 68 acres of land that was just, was never going to happen unless somebody who was just as scared as anybody else took a risk 32 years ago, drove into town with a U-Haul trailer, two little girls and a wife who didn't know what the heck I was doing to start a church that didn't exist and to hope God would do something. But he did some. We're here on the basis of what he did, but he didn't do it until somebody else took a risk. Financial risk, marital and family risk, ego risk, everything in the world to lose. But I never would know what could have happened if I didn't take the risk. And you want, you can sit there and listen to other people's testimony. You can read the promise of God and get nothing because you won't do what he says. Well, it's scary. Well, I'm not sure I can trust God. Well, you know, then the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. You say, well, I thought he was impressed with my hairstyle and the fact I don't smoke. Sorry. God says, do something dangerous, not stupid. Do something dangerous. Do something that you're going to need some faith to get it done, and you get my attention. Always. And the people that changed the world, that left a legacy, always bet the farm on taking a risk. I I don't know how church got to be a comfort place of safety and pretty and nice and clean. It ought to be the dirtiest place in town. Nasty people getting transformed, life emerging, stuff happening. Yeah, well, it just was. That's life. The Bible says where you have a clean stall, you got no ox. But where you have an ox that's going to turn out productivity, where there's life, you got mess. You got children, you got mess. You got pets, you got mess. So you want the joy of kids, it's wonderful, but you're going to have mess. You can't have one without the other. And so remember the story of Elijah and the widow? He asked her, take your last bit of flour and your last little cruise of oil, and make me some bread. And if she did that, God would keep that jar full of flour and the oil full throughout the entire drought in Israel. And that was all she had left, and she was going to bake a little tortilla, eat it with she and her son, and die. That's what she said. He said, don't do that. Trust me. Let's honor God first. Give me that first. And God will keep you alive through the entire famine until the rains come. She could have said, well, fill my jar up first, then I'll make Elijah bread. But God was asking her to take the first step. He was asking her to risk trusting Him first. Is there anything in your life now you're trusting God for? Are you waiting for Him to remove all the risk? Well, I want to know exactly which college. I want to know exactly which person, so that I know there's lots of nice people, but I want to marry the exact right purpose. Well, good luck. Cindy and I don't know if we married the right person, but we married 42 years ago. I mean, obviously, you can share values and vision, of course. You, you can share a few of those, but you don't know who you married. The person you dated is locked, you know, the real person's home locked up in a cage. You didn't even meet them yet until you get married. So you just have to take a risk. I mean, you do your homework. You're going to buy a home. You have to do your homework. You have to look at your budget, but you still have to take a risk. 
Well, I don't know if the economy's going to go up. I don't, I don't know. How would you like to sign up for 40-something million dollars and put your signature on the loan to build this place and take a risk and say, well, we don't know. You know, don't know. That was 08 with the collapse of the economy. I don't know. We didn't build this church on, I don't know. We built it on faith that God told us what to do, and we did it, and we survived the recession, and we're going to go on to bigger and better things. God doesn't do anything through, well, I don't know. If God said, I know, He's dangerous, of course. There's a possibility of failure, always. But there's a possibility of great success and a dynamic adventure for God. And some of you need a buzz. Some of, some of you are one step from a grave. You need, you need some excitement in your life. And it's not going to come sitting down. You know, I'm glad you come to church. I want you to come to church. But there's no buzz. There's, you're, like a, you're like a non-carbonated drink. There's no, no fizz to it. <laughs> you're like a virgin margarita. Yeah. Okay. I always wanted to say that in church. <laughs> Most of the book of Joshua involves a series of battle stories that are centered around this thought. Will Israel trust God enough to do what He says? Will they trust Him enough to take the first step? And whenever they do, whenever they take those risky steps, God's power always manifests in some amazing way. In Joshua 6, it's the story of the fall of the great city Jericho. And God tells them, think about it, walk around Jericho once a day for seven days. Well, and don't say anything. What? What's he, what is he thinking? And then on the seventh day, go around seven times. And after the seventh time, I want the priest to blow the ram's horn, and I want everybody to shout, really, that is the dumbest military strategy ever proposed. And God gave it to Joshua. And when they did, the walls fell down, and they walked in without the loss of a man and took that city. Now why would God tell them to do it that way? In Joshua 6, verse 16, so that you will know it is the Lord that has given you the city, not your military might, not your uh, 401k, not your high IQ, your doctorate, your master's degree, not your skillful talent that I gave you, that I did it. God waits till a man's 100 years old to make a promise come true. I'm going to give you a son. He is going to be the descendant of blessings. And we're going to bless all the nations of the world, Abraham. A hundred years. He got the promise a long time before a hundred. And he tries to figure out, how am I going to help God make it happen? So his wife says, well, why don't you have a relationship with uh, Hagar? And he thought, thank you, sweetheart. That's a good idea. <laughs> I don't hear that in any marriage counseling. Anyway, they, with wife's permission... They had a relationship and had Ishmael, and God rejected Ishmael. He says, that's what your flesh produced. I said, I'm going to give you a son, but I'm going to wait till you're dead as Julius Caesar in your body, and your wife's womb is dead, and there ain't an egg, there's not an ounce of estrogen or testosterone in your body. There's not a drug, there's not a chemical, there's not a surgery that can help you. Now, I'm going to give you a baby, and you'll know it's of the Spirit, 
and it's by my might and power, not by your stinking flesh. That's why God will sometimes wait till you nearly drown. So you know it was him. (laughs) I hate the process, but I'm just telling you how it is. So God says, will you trust me enough to do something even if you feel a little foolish doing it? Will you trust me? One of the great stories of trust in Joshua 14, verse 10, Caleb and Joshua, you know, they send the spies to check out the promised land. Uh, They went with them. They were the only ones who came back and says, we are well able. Let us go up at once and take the land. Those giants, they're bread for us. But because of Israel's unbelief, Caleb and Joshua had to spend 40 years in a wilderness waiting for a whole generation to die. Imagine. Now they've crossed the River Jordan. Caleb is now not 40. He's 85. And Caleb says, just as the Lord promised, He has kept me alive for 45 years. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. Then he says to Joshua, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me 45 years ago. You yourself heard then that the Amalekites were there. Their cities are large and fortified, but with the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Here's an 85-year-old guy asking for the toughest land in military combat, high ground, the hill country. If you're in combat, you want the high ground. You want to be able to defend and shoot down on the people in the lower valley. He wants the high ground where these giants and these treacherous enemies are. You'd think he'd be asking for a nice retirement condo at Shalom Acres and looking for a Social Security check. But he has a really hard request. Give me one more chance to trust you, God. Forty-five years I've been dying in a church of unbelief, waiting for this chance. Don't let me miss it now. I don't think you have to consider how old you are. If God made you a promise, he'll let you be strong and healthy until it's fulfilled. If he has to reverse the aging process, He will until what he said comes to pass. And if this dude gets started at 85, I ain't even got started yet. That's what I'm thinking about. You know, our insurance agent, they always want you to tell them at what time you want to retire and all, and there's just no place in their little program for I'm not going to retire. That's not in the cards. People die when they retire. They start getting every disease of Egypt. All science and all medical studies show that you you sit on the back porch, you got nothing to get up for, you have nothing to think about, and everything begins to atrophy in your body. Your brain cells shrink, you start getting dementia, you you start getting different problems in your body, there's nothing to stimulate your immune system, and you die. If you read the Bible, there's no retirement. Now, you might have to retire from a particular company or job, but you don't quit. You do something else. You got, I mean, they force you to retire as a pilot. I think it's 65 now, but you can go on and do other things. You're not ready to hang it up at 65, for God's sake. You're now, you're finally at a place you're making enough money, you can do something. You can make some difference. You're not struggling to make ends meet. You've got your life pretty well settled down. How about jumping in and help us? How about do something, you know, with your life? You're, you've got wisdom you can share with young people or young adults. You can do a little bit of counseling. You can do business counseling. If you ran a business, there's a, your life isn't over. It's just another phase of life. 
Don't be thinking about this retirement nonsense. So, what's your Jordan River right now? Where's God asking you to take a step of faith? Is there anything that might be keeping you from responding to whatever God has put on your heart? There are people in this room now that have their own business, work for themselves, that I met over 10 years ago and said, you need to be working for yourself. You're good enough to work. For. Everybody can't be an entrepreneur. That's, that's true. But when you see somebody who can, you don't want them hooked up and limited in their life when they could own their own business and make the money for themselves and the kingdom and do a lot better. And they're doing it right now. And I thank God for them. But I tell you, just like coming here to start a church out of nothing, it's scary. And they had to step into the Jordan River to meet God and take a gamble. They had to gamble their security. They had to gamble their finances. They had to take a step of faith. And it's only after they take it that God brought deliverance, even through some hard times, getting startup. They made it. And you'll make it. But nothing will happen until you take that risky step of obedience. Because everybody I know faces barriers from a Jordan. What's yours? God says, I've already gone before you. I'll be there. I will not remove all the risk. I won't make it comfortable. So you're going to have to choose. Whatever your Jordan is, it's always going to involve taking a risk and overcoming fear. And if you're doing something you've never done before, you're going to have a little fear. Why? Because you never did it before. So you're going to have to conquer it, and that's how you grow. So wherever your Jordan is or whatever it is, it's going to involve taking risk and overcoming fear. That's why in Joshua 1, God tells Joshua over and over and over again, I'd be saying, Lord, you've said that six times. I'm reckoning there's something I'm going to face that's going to scare the Gehenna out of me, right? Yep. There are going to be giants. There's going to be all kinds of problems. And I'm going to tell you, you stand on my promise. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's going to scare you. Well, the economy may crash. It's going to scare you. Don't be afraid. My finances are not hooked up to an administration. It's hooked up to the kingdom of God. God, God controls it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the gold and the silver. It's all mine. The earth is mine, says the Lord, and all the inhabitants of it, Psalms 23. What kingdom are you, are you worried about? See, there's no shortage in the kingdom of God. God can get it to you if he can get it through you. Some of you are like a clogged artery, you know? It's like you need liquid drainer or plumber or something to get it, to get it through you. So I think, really, for some of you, it's time for some sp spiritual risk-taking. Not foolish, but a risk. Would you trust him enough to take the first step? God's power gets released when somebody first trusts him enough to obey him. And a lot of people spend their whole life standing scared on the banks of the Jordan, waiting for the water to part first. Okay, God, you part the water first, then I'll get in. You make it easy. You make it safe. Give me whatever I need first before I take the step of faith. Or you may be thinking, God, give me lots of money, then I'll be generous. Yet God says, not going to happen. Give, you shall receive. If you're unfaithful in a little, you'll be unfaithful in much. It's just simple. Yeah, Rick, when I win that lottery, I'm going to help pay off the church. Yeah, you'll be out of San Antonio like a bootlegger out of Alabama on Friday night. We'll never see you again. If you don't help now, you won't help with big. You take, if it's $20, it's $20. And if it turns into $200 million, you'll still be the same. If you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. 
And that's how God proves you. That's how God tests you. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, Lord, give me lots of confidence. Then I'll tell somebody about you. But make it real easy. Now, it is true. If you speak to somebody about Jesus, they might not receive Him. If you invite somebody to church, and I hope you will, they might say no. But if you don't, how can they ever say yes? My point is, you've got to step into the Jordan, and nobody can do that for you. You've got to take the first step. So let me challenge you as we close. Do some spiritual risk-taking this week. Imagine if no one in Israel was willing to get their feet wet. What if they had said, you part the water first, God, make it safe, then we'll get in. Well, they'd still be bleached bones rotting on the banks of the Jordan River. No promised land, no miracles, no nation, no adventure with God, no nothing. Just day after day, year after year, generation after generation sitting on the banks of the Jordan waiting for something to happen. And for some of you, you've been sitting on the banks long too much. You may feel safe on the bank, but I'll tell you something, the Jordan is where God is, not on the bank, in the water. And that's where He's calling you. Jesus could have walked all the way to the boat in the storm on Galilee, but He didn't. He told Peter, come. And Peter had to do some water walking, and don't you think he was scared? You might get scared like Peter, but look what Peter went on to accomplish in his life. God's power is available to people willing to take the first step and to trust Him with a spiritual risk. In Joshua 24, He calls the people of Israel to make a decision. Will you follow God with all your heart? Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And that's part of why God made you, to live in intimacy with Him and then allow that life and joy and intimacy with Him to ripple out from you into the world around you. We're supposed to be toxic. We ought to be like a virus spreading everywhere. Oh, they say ISIS is spreading abroad or, or uh, the Taliban is back. It's spreading. Christianity was in the first five centuries spread like wildfire. Over a quarter of the population was converted to Christianity. It spread like cancer. That's a good thing. You know what we do in America? We cocoon. We just meet in our little cocoon here, and then we go home, and we don't spread anything but a pitiful kind of a Christianity. Well, imagine what God could do with us all together. If we remain committed to love God, love people, and serve the world around us, we can make a difference. All of us can make a difference, and any difference is a good difference. I love what Mother Teresa said one time. She said, I can do what you can't do, but you can do what I can't do. But together, we can do great things. We can make a difference in our world. And God did not design you to sit in the bleachers and watch the game. He didn't design you to sit in the pew and watch the leader speak or the choir sing. We all have a part to play in the body of Christ serving, giving, loving, counseling, uh, teaching, uh, using your musical gifts, technical gifts, all kinds of high-tech stuff. Everybody's got a part to play, and nobody's unimportant. I have a body with lots of parts, and I want to tell you right now, I ain't willing to separate with any part. As far as I'm concerned, they're all important. I want to keep everything, right? Well, can you imagine a body missing parts? It won't function well. And the church of Jesus Christ is missing a lot of parts 
because they won't function. So do your part, at least. You can't do someone else's, but at least make sure you do yours. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.